think we'll see that this morning. Um, if you'll turn with me, we're just going to read one verse. We're going to do a, uh, it's not a detour, it's more of a a life example of what we heard last week from Psalm 119. So if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 1, we're just going to read verse 1. So Romans 1, verse 1. If you'll stand and read with me. I believe this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Lord, I pray that this morning we would see the need to be surrendered totally to you, uncompromising, unwilling to be moved to the left or to the right, but to stay on the path that you've placed us on. Lord, you knew each of us from the day, from before we were born, and you have directed our steps so that we would be here today. And I pray, Lord, that your word would go forth, that you would give me clarity to speak what I believe you've put on my heart this morning. Because, Lord, I believe it's your word to us. I pray that it would encourage us. It would convict us. And it would ultimately, Lord, change the way we live daily. Lord, give us a passion for the truth of your word and a love for you that cannot be taken. We thank you for this. We ask, Lord, that you would cause the children to be able to hear your word this morning, to be attentive, and even, Lord, to begin to have those seeds planted in their hearts, to know the truth, and to be set free from the dominion of darkness. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You may be wondering, how are we going to get a sermon out of one verse. <laughs> um, I just started thinking a lot about being single-hearted um, since last week. You know, we saw this progression in Psalm 119. What was it three, four weeks ago? This view of meditating on the Word and obeying the Word, not just hearing, but actually applying it to our lives. And then we saw the next week a commitment to the Word, a commitment to actually do something, not not just a um, partial, you know, I'll, I'll do that, I'll get to that. No, an actual commitment, I will do this, a dedic- dedicating ourselves and devoting ourselves to the Word. And then last week we saw the psalmist talking about single-hearted devotion to God and the fact that as believers, we cannot ride the fence. We can't be on one side and the other at the same time. We must be wholehearted. And this week I was watching a documentary, and I can't remember all of it, but it was about Deion Sanders. And I don't know if you know who that is, but Deion Sanders played football, and baseball professionally. And one year, 
I can't remember the year exactly, but one year he actually played football in the morning in Miami and played in the uh, National League Championship Series that night in Pittsburgh. So, interestingly enough, he's the first man to ever play two that we know of to play professional sports, two professional sports on the same day. And this documentary is kind of like all the drama about that day and how he, um, you know, people in the leadership at the Braves where he played, um, some of those people were upset that he went and even played that game, so they wouldn't even play him in that game. So he dressed, but he didn't actually play in the second game because they wouldn't, the general manager was upset at him for going. And eventually, at the end of the documentary, this is what actually made me think about it. At the end of the documentary, he compared baseball, <laughs> shockingly, he compared baseball and football to marriage. And he said, you know, football was the one that would always pay the bills, but baseball was exciting. And he realized that he couldn't play both sports and be all in. And so he committed to playing football full-time, I think two seasons after that, that evening, and ended up winning a Super Bowl with the 49ers and the Cowboys. Um, and he was great at both sports. His hitting average at, in baseball was incredible. In the, the, the World Series, after that double playing two games, the World Series that the Braves made it to, he had the best batting average, over 600, which is insane in the World Series. If, if the Braves, if anybody else on the Braves team had hit even half of what he had been hitting, they might have won that World Series. But he realized that while he could play both sports, he couldn't focus on both sports. And so this sermon is kind of a, a continuation of this idea that as believers, we can't, we need to be single-hearted. And we see that with the, with the Apostle Paul. It's interesting, he starts this verse, he says, Paul, so his name, and then the, these, these descriptions are kind of like um, titles, I think of as titles. And he says, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is apostle, right? Is that what Paul puts first in this list of titles? What's the first thing he puts on the list? Is it apostle? No, it's actually a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't put the title that everyone else in our world wants. You know, there's these... There's this so-called apostolic movement right now and prophetic movement. But everybody wants to put prophet there. I have not seen a single one of these people calling themselves an apostle or a prophet saying bondservant or let's actually change the term to what it means, slave. We don't like that word anymore. But slave of Christ Jesus. That is the title that he picks first. 
This is not popular language anymore. There are actually moves within some churches in the U.S. to strip the Bible of any language that would be demeaning to one group or another. Because God is not like that. Well, we're going to have to throw out the book of Romans. (laughs) Because the Apostle Paul does not play games when he talks about following God. So he, he's a slave of Christ. And so I've titled this message, Slave Called Separated. Slave Called Separated. And we're just going to look at each phrase that Paul does, and we're going to look at his life and see what it means to be single-hearted in our devotion to God. So starting with servant, what was he a servant of prior? Who was he slave to prior to coming to Christ? Well, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 7, and I know we haven't been turning pages a lot lately, so you might need to do some finger exercises. Um, But if you look in Acts chapter 7, we have the first mention of Paul, who at the time was called Saul. So Acts 7, chapter 58. So we have the stoning of Stephen, and this is where we come in, in chapter verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So, they needed to take their coats off so they could stone Stephen. They, they couldn't throw the stones hard enough. And whose feet were they throwing them at? Saul's. It's interesting, uh, Mark, who, John Mark, who wrote this, or, or Luke, sorry, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, it's interesting, he, it's almost like if you were watching a movie, this would be like a foreshadowing of what's coming. Because it says, after he says, They went on stoning Stephen as he called unto the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And then verse 8, chapter 8 begins. And this is why he mentions Saul in this story of Stephen. He says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Hearty. This idea is not just, you know, oh yeah, it's good we killed him. No, he was in total agreement. He was celebrating the stoning of Stephen. This man filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says, And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So we see here a pushing of the church out of Jerusalem. Remember Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the other parts of the earth? Well, Jesus is allowing persecution to begin this push. I'm going on, he says, Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul 
began ravaging the church. This is not docile language that Luke is using. He began destroying the church, like attacking, seeking to do whatever he could to destroy the church. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. So what was Saul, who was Saul, now Paul, serving? Who was he a slave to? The law, as he saw it. To Jewish understanding of the law. To legalistic living. And ultimately, to sin. He was so blinded by his zeal that he was persecuting the God that he said he served. Right? Because he, he thought he was serving God, the, the God of the, the Old Testament. But in reality, he was serving as an enemy of God. He was a slave to that. And we see that in Romans chapter 6. If you will turn there with me. He describes to us in Romans 6, 5 through 23, and I want to read these because I, I don't want us to, to leave here realizing that Paul is, is using language that we've seen. Obviously, when we did the book of Romans, we talked about this, but so we're not going to go into great detail, but we're just going to read this. So starting in verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we no longer be slaves to sin. Right? The psalmist, or Paul, understood that it, when he was in the old man, he was a slave to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, so in light of the fact that Jesus is your Lord and you are now living through Him, He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. This idea of reign, like a king. Like you are its slave. And He goes on. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. Why? Because we're in Christ. For you are not under law but under grace. Well then, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves, 
You're presenting yourself. You are putting yourself in a place to be its slave. For obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though, see this though is very important, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed that teaching that was given to you. You became obedient to what? Not sin anymore, but to the gospel. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. He's saying, look, if you are not in Christ, this is your life. You are a slave whether you like it or not. The question is, who is your master? Is your master a wicked, destructive master? Or is it a loving, caring God? So, just as you present your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so it's just going to get worse. I mean, we know people. We, we see this in the world. You continue to present yourself to sin as your master. Eventually, you just get worse and worse and worse, and eventually, it's over. Sin will not be happy with just status quo sin. Sin will always multiply itself in your life. That's why when we open the door to sin, it doesn't stay with that one sin. It, it results in other sins, maybe lying because you don't want the person to know that you looked at that or you did that or whatever. And then because you're lying, you, you then start trying to hide things from other people. For long, you're in full-fledged mountain of sin before you and you're like, how did I get on top of this? I hope no one figures out what's underneath all of this. So now, so remember, he's talking to believers. He says, so now, present your members as slaves to righteousness. Well, Paul, I don't want to be a slave anymore. I want freedom. Right? We all want to get on the top of the hill with William Wallace and yell, Freedom! Guess what? You will serve someone. The question is, who? Will you serve Satan and sin, or will you serve God and righteousness? There's no middle ground. Remember, we, we, there's no fence that you can straddle and be in both kingdoms. Because God hates darkness, and darkness hates light. Can't play both sides of the fence. But when we present your, our members as slaves to righteousness, guess what happens? We, it results in sanctification, being set apart, something we're going to talk about, being made holy like God through what? The power of His Spirit. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, 
You were free in regard to righteousness. Or you, you were unable to do anything righteous. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. They were, it was nothing and worthless. But now, having been freed from sin, oh, don't say it, Paul, and enslaved to God. This is not popular. I just, I just want to be like an indentured servant to God. That's just way better than being an enslaved to God. Can't be. You either are surrendered wholly to the Lord or you are not at all. You can't be half slave, half free. This will not uh, trend on YouTube or Facebook. You put something like this on Instagram, you won't have very many good responses. Because this is what our culture is fighting against. They do not want to serve the living God. As Christians, are we going to die with the world or are we going to serve Him? I'm sorry I'm coming a little strong because this has really been something that I've been thinking about a lot. We will not survive and thrive as a church or as individuals or as a family unless God is everything to us. Unless God permeates every part of our lives. We must be enslaved to God. Take that quote, put it up couple places see what ensues <laughs> and then what does he say he says you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification the outcome eternal life see the difference death is the result of slavery to sin slavery to the devil but life comes from being enslaved to God, serving God with all your life, not part of it, every part of your life, from the moment you wake up to the moment you fall asleep. Probably even when you're sleeping. What are we doing? Do we wake up saying, God, I'm your servant? Could, could we wake up every morning and say, God, I am... Your slave, I've been called by you, you've given me a calling, and I've been separated by you for your purposes. Set apart, made holy. How would our life change if we woke up with those three things on our mind? I've been, I'm a slave to God. Or to Jesus Christ. I am called by Him and I'm separated by Him. Then we have this, this final here in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. So you, you decide that you want to work and be a slave to sin, guess what you're going to get paid? Death. That's a pretty good paycheck, right? That's the lie of sin. Sin says, well, if you keep working for me, 
something good's going to come out of it. No, it's not. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you are enslaved to God, it's not like you're working for your salvation. You've already got it. It's a gift. But with the devil, all you're going to get paid out of sin is death. Nothing else. Yeah, you might have momentary, brief pleasure, but what's coming right after that? Guilt, condemnation, and eventually, judgment. The psalmist, or Paul understood what slavery looked like. Like He wasn't trying to play games. It wasn't an accident. Oh, I I got halfway through the book and realized I should have put slave after everything else. No. He was intentional. He's like, oh, I don't want to waste this scroll, so I'm I'm just going to... You know, books, scrolls are too expensive. I'm just going to leave it. No, he purposely put slave of Christ Jesus first. So he was a slavery of sin, but he, he became a slave to Jesus Christ. This idea of slavery in the Roman times is not all flowers and roses like a lot of people in our world today want to say. They, they want to say, well, you know, slavery during the Greek and Roman times, it was nothing like the slavery of southern pre-Civil War time period. That is the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard. It's different because southern people went to Africa through the British to bring slaves from Africa. Slavery in Rome was just as bad. The only difference is these people were fighting and they got taken captive. That's the difference. In Africa, we had people actually selling their own people or going to other tribes and selling them for a profit, for whatever they wanted. And of course, also people just being kidnapped. That's not, that's not to justify, but... The difference was, in Roman culture, it's the same as what slavery was here. Slaves had no legal rights. None. J. Sidlow Baxter, a a, a commentator, he said, his time, speaking of a slave, his time, his will, his body, his life were not his own. That's what a slave was. And even his death. He didn't have a choice. Nothing that we value as Americans, especially the freedoms that we have, nothing that we value, they had. They didn't have their own time. They didn't have a choice to do or not to do. Their body didn't belong to them. They you know, they, they didn't want to keep working. Well, sorry. You get to work right now. You're going to get beat. You're going to get flogged. Their lives were not their own. Paul is not trying to use figurative language just so that we 
feel good. No, he's saying this is what life with Christ is like. Not that God is a mean, unkind master. That's the difference. Sin, gift, and wage for work is death. But God's gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You know the difference between slavery to sin and slavery to Christ for Paul? His time, his will, his body, his life were not his own. And this was a choice he made. The slaves of Roman time were forced to be slaves, whether they were captured, maybe even kidnapped, or sold into slavery to pay debt. Whatever it was, the difference is Paul wanted to be a slave of Christ Jesus. J.C. Baxter says something else. He says, all of us believers want spiritual liberty. But thousands of us never experience it because we will not lose self-liberty in a loving, lifelong slavery to our Lord Jesus. I'll read it again. All of us believers want spiritual liberty. But thousands of us never experience it because we will not lose self-liberty in a loving, lifelong slavery to our Lord Jesus. This is not popular in this country that we live in. The idea of slavery to anything, not just culturally, because we love our freedoms, is Ridiculous. How can we be free if we're slaves to God? That's the only place you're going to be free to serve Him. You want to serve the living God? You, you love the Lord? Then be a slave. Be surrendered and say, white flag, I'm coming out and I'm trusting that you will care for me. You will protect me. You, as the psalmist said last week, will be my shield and my protector. The garden where I can grow. People will say, I can't believe you just do what Jesus says to do. That's just ridiculous. Why don't you do what? Why don't you go with the current? Guess what? The current's going to run you up against the shore and crash and shipwreck you. But Jesus is not that way. He protects and keeps us. Have we as... Christians used the desire for spiritual liberty as an excuse to be selfish, to be all about us. And we've never experienced the fullness of God's presence in our life, whether, no matter what that may, may look like, because we're not fully surrendered to Him. What would our life look like if we were fully surrendered to His Lordship? I don't think it's an accident that, again, the psalmist put, or Paul puts 
bondservant of Christ Jesus first. He's saying, God, Jesus Christ, is my master. If Jesus is not the Lord of your life, He is not the Savior of your life. Just as much as if He's not the Savior of your life, He won't be the Lord of your life. We want to get rid of this so-called oppressive language. You know who are oppressors? Wicked men, not Jesus. I'm not throwing out so-called oppressor language, which, if you know, that's what all the critical race theory is opposed to, the BLM, and they hate that language because they realize that if they commit to serve Jesus Christ, they won't get what they want. Secondly, called. Called what? He says, called as an apostle, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It's interesting. What was he called before? Who, who, again, he was serving the devil. He was serving sin. He was a slave to sin. So he was an enemy of God. And I want us to read this in Acts chapter 9. We're looking at his story because it's, I think the problem is oftentimes we hear these things like what we heard last week from Psalm 119, but we need a real life example. So, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Does this sound like a really friendly guy you want to hang out with? If you were living in that time and you were in the church would you be like, hey, Paul, come on over, Saul, come on over to my house. Let's hang out. Can, can we do some, some uh, friendship evangelism today? No, you would not be inviting Saul to your house. Because Saul would be breaking down the door of your house to throw you in prison. And even killing you if possible. So Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Why is he going to the high priest? Because he's serving the religious leaders of the time. Right? He, he is a religious man. And asked for letters from him, from him, from the high priest, to the synagogue at Damascus, Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way is Christianity, followers of Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what's his mission? He wants to go to Damascus and find believers in Christ and bring them back to Jerusalem to throw them in jail and to have them go through a trial. And hopefully, in his case, he wants them to die. Like This religion is false to him. So he is an enemy of God. As he was traveling, he, it happened, oh, just by happen chance. No, this is a divine appointment. It happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What? Was Jesus the person that he was persecuting? He was persecuting the church who were unwilling to give up their faith in Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, they hate you because of me, not because of you. If you follow me, they will hate you. This is not a popular message either. In this world, you will encounter trouble, but I am with you. I have overcome the world. He says, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who you traveled, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Paul got, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a, a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, do you think Ananias knew who the man of Tarsus named Saul was? Yes, he was famous. If Ananias was about himself, I want to be free. I want to have spiritual liberty and freedom. I want to be free. Would he have just done that? If Jesus was not Lord of his life, would he have obeyed what the Lord said? No, because he knew what it would lead to. At, le at that point, yeah, God said he was praying, but and it's like, uh, I'm not sure I trust this. <laughs> but he says, so he says, but Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, not just one, but many people, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Like, God, don't you know what's going on? Guess what? We can pray prayers like that. We can respond like that. He's just asking, wait, Lord, I, this doesn't make sense. Why would you send me there just to get me thrown in jail? Or maybe worse, stoned like Stephen. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Chosen. By whom? God. To bear my name before, gen before the Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Is that typically what we want to see to follow Jesus? If God laid out before us what we must suffer for His sake, would that be like, oh, let, let's go? I don't think so. 
Maybe, maybe you all like suffering. But interestingly, God shows, it seems here, Saul what he must suffer for the sake of Christ, as a slave of Christ. And yet, what does he do? He, he serves him. Does I, you are the living God. You are Lord, and I will live my life for you. So Ananias departed into the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, what a change. He believed the Lord. He went and he said, Brother Saul. He would not have said that if he didn't believe what God had told him. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the, the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who is in Jerusalem? Who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on the name and who has come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Paul, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. This was a dramatic change. I don't know how long the trip is from Jer Jerusalem to Damascus. I probably should have looked it up. But... He was still thinking about and breathing threats and murders when he left Jerusalem. He has an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road. And guess what he starts doing the moment that God opens his eyes and fills him with the Spirit? He begins preaching the gospel. He doesn't wait around. He's filled with the Spirit. And this is another reason why I desire deeply to be filled afresh. Because when God fills a man with His Spirit, He is able to do everything that God has called them to do through Him, not in His own strength. They were even confounded by the way he was proving, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Isn't that incredible? He's a newborn believer and he is proving and confounding the Jews. Do you think that all that past knowledge was useless? No. I believe when God opened his eyes, he's like, whoa, I didn't realize that meant that and that meant that and that. God was doing a work in him. He does the same thing in our lives. All our past experience comes in and he opens our eyes and we're like, whoa, that, 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 that was all because you called me? So he went from being an enemy of God to an apostle. 
If you look quickly, Ephesians chapter or Philippians chapter three. Philippians 3, starting in verse 2. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's saying, look... These false teachers, they're, they're confident in their own flesh, their own past, who they are, their strength, their own strengths. He says this, Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Look, I, if there's anyone else that should be taking pride in his flesh, it would be me. He says, Circumcise the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Amen! As to zeal, or sorry, as to the righteousness which is the law found blameless. I mean, I was, I mean, I was a law keeper. A law keeper of law keepers. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my friend. Is that what he says? No, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I'm willing to suffer the loss of all things because Jesus is the Lord of my life. I have surrendered all to him. He is my single-hearted devotion. And count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. We like the first part. We get to there. Like, oh, maybe this slavery thing is not good. Fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What a dramatic difference. In the world standards... Saul was just this amazing religious man. Who knows? Maybe he would have been a high priest or a, one of the, the, the greatest wisdom and, and scribe and one of the great leaders of the Pharisees. Pharisees had a lot of religious wisdom, but the problem is they didn't know God. When Saul met Jesus on the road to, to Damascus that day, he met God for the first time. And he's, he was committed. He thought he was serving God. That whole time he was destroying the church. He thought he was serving God. But when God met him, 
His life changed dramatically. He went from being an enemy of God to a soldier of God and a messenger, or a sent out one. That's He's called to be a an apostle. Apostle is a, a Greek word. It's a compound word. And we actually, in English, we actually just transliterate it. So it's actually, that's it almost sounds like that in Greek. It's also how we get the word epistle. Epistle is that it, the end of both apostle and epistle is stello, which means um, sent. So stello means sent. And then at the beginning you have apostle, apo means from or for. So sent from. So the sent out ones from whom? God. And then epistle is sent for. Or two, sorry, two. I'm, I'm thinking backwards. So a letter is sent to the people, and the apostle is a messenger sent from God. So all of us are apostles in that sense, not in the, the, the New Testament sense of that specific office, but in reality, we are all sent out. Right? Because an apostle was a sent out one, sent from God. They are a delegate, a messenger. One, and this is, I really like this, one sent forth with orders. Why? Because they're under the leadership of their master. Remember when the centurion came to Jesus to have his servant healed? And he said, I'm not worthy for you to come to my roof. You say and they'll be healed because I am a Lord over many and they do what I say. And I know that you have power. So when you tell him to go, he's going to be healed. That centurion understood the power of Jesus and he had faith. That's why Jesus said, I have not found greater faith in Israel. Such faith in Israel. When God sends forth His people, us, we become messengers. We have orders. And what, is, what happens when God calls us out to be His people? He gives us a vocation. It's not just, you know, the post office or cabinet shop or construction or electrical or hardwood flooring or um, accounting. No, our calling includes that. But our main calling is to reach the lost, to go out with the message of Jesus Christ and bring Jesus to the world. We see this in Acts chapter 13, if you'll turn there. Verse 1 through 3. We see this specific calling for for Paul, because his name has now been... Called Paul. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me. So there's all these people here. They're all serving God as they have been called to do. 
But God sets apart or, or separates a specific two. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. What? To do the mission of God. To do what God had called him to do. To go to the ends of the earth with the good news. Made me think of John 20, verse 21. Jesus says, So Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Has God made this clear to us? That doesn't mean we're all going to be taking a ship over to another country or a boat or a a plane. It may mean just sharing the gospel tomorrow morning at the supermarket or at your work or wherever you go, the coffee shop. Being true to the gospel, realizing that what you have is hope. That's what surrender looks like. You say you believe the word, live it. Don't, don't just play games. Have you surrendered your will and, and the possibility of persecution, suffering for Jesus as an option in your life? So what was, the, what was Paul sent out with? Look with me at Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, starting in verse 11. Paul is not writing a very nice letter to Galatians because they're trying to walk away. They're trying to buy into what Saul, what Paul used to believe. That the law and doing the works of the law would save him. So he starts with verse 11 and he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It's not, it's not man's gospel. I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught me this. It wasn't just some man's opinion. He goes on. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used, used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That was who I used to be. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. This was Saul. This was Saul before God got a hold of him. Before he met God. He was, I mean, a zealot. But, 
This is a really big but right here. But, verse 15, but when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb. What? Oh, come on, Paul. Stop, being, stop believing that God actually has control over everything. Stop believing in the sovereignty of God, Saul, Paul. But God, who, has, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me. Why? So that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. He didn't, he didn't run around, Hey, hey, Peter, is this the right gospel? Hey, hey, um... John, is this what Jesus actually taught? Hey, hey, uh, Matthew, is this this what Jesus taught? Is this right? No, he he didn't immediately consult with the flesh and He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to, to, to Arabia. Wait, Paul, you went to the wilderness? You went to the desert? And returned once more to Damascus. So, Saul didn't run to Jerusalem to make sure everything was right. He went out to the desert. I'm, I'm believing he was led by the Spirit. Spent time with the Lord. And then he returned to Damascus. You know how he got to Antioch? Any of you know? Barnabas. Barnabas went from Antioch went to Damascus and said, Hey, Saul, Paul, can you come with me to Antioch and help me teach? That's how he got there. The Holy Spirit led Barnabas to, to Tarsus to get his attention and bring him back. Verse 18, Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cyphus, which, if you don't know, that's Peter. And stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing you, I assure you before God, I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. This is, the, this is what happens when God calls us. It is a transformation of who we were. It's not a bigger, better version of us. It's a transformation. I, I saw a video about recycling glass. I know this sounds super exciting. But... To recycle glass, they don't keep the glass in its form. They have to break it up, and they have sifters that clean out. Um, first sifting is just to get out any like papers and stuff like that. And then the second sifting is actually a cleaning process where they they get all the like sticker and all that residue off. And then they have a breaking process. They break it up into tiny little piece, pieces. And it, it it breaks it, and then it like makes it into a powder. Like, huh? 
What if God looked at us like glass? And then that powder is taken to either a glass factory or actually they, they also use recycled glass to make uh, fiberglass insulation. And they heat it up till it's molten to form new glass. But if they don't purify, and they actually also have to separate the glass, okay, all the brown glass over here, all the green, all the, the clear, you know, whatever color, and because they have different chemicals in them, and you can't have a mix. So they have to separate that too. But all that process to get a new glass that can be useful to someone again. I, th- I was thinking, in that... We don't want that experience, but that's what God calls us to. He, do, he doesn't want to just use us as we are. He, he has to rework us completely. Yes, He's given us experience up to this point, just like Saul. But God is calling us to submit to His Lordship, which means suffering, which means sifting, which means heat, which means brokenness, pain. Persecution, trials. These all are for the formation of a vessel that when it stands before God, He will say, well done, good and faithful. What, what, what's, what's the word that He uses? Servant. It's the exact same word that Paul translates bondman or slave. It's the same word in Greek, slave or servant. I want to say, well done, good and faithful slave. You did what I said. You obeyed me. You saw the result of my power in your life. And guess what? You stand before me today doing what I called you to do. Finally, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, separated unto the gospel of God, or set apart for the gospel of God. This idea of being separated, being called out, set apart, set apart. That's It's holy. That's what holy means, to be set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart from what? What's What's he separated from? The world. We're in the world, but not of it. I think about boats. Boats are in the water, but they're not of the water. Right? They're navigating the waves and the the seas, but they're not of the water. They're they're a different material. They're, They're a vessel that it's in the water, and if we are not of the world, we can... Go with or against the waves and the currents, the storms. We're going to feel like we're about to get capsized. We may feel that there's no hope. The waves are too big. The storm's too strong. But God has separated us and called us to be different. To be holy. To be His people. We're separated from the world to be slaves of God.
The Apostle Paul gives a, a different, not against what we hear early on in Acts, but another retelling of his salvation in Acts chapter 26. And I want to end there in verse 15. So he's before the king Agrippa. In verse 13 it says, At midday, O king, I saw on, a way, on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goes. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you. To appoint you or to set you apart as a minister and a witness. Not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. This call is for every one of us. We may not have the influence that Paul had in the early church. We may not see the number of people come to Christ that he saw through the ministry that God called him to, but every single one of us are apostles in the sense of the meaning of that word. Sent out from God to a broken and dark world. We're like Coast Guard cutter ships. We're going out on a search and rescue mission. We're going out to find souls who have been shipwrecked. They've been pushed up to shore. They've been broken apart. I was reading the story of Bernie Weber. He was a Coast Guard boatswain, I think that's how you say it, in uh, Massachusetts. There's a movie about him called Finest Hours. And, but anyways, he, he and three other men went out on the middle of a nor'easter, which if you don't know what that is, it's like, you imagine a hurricane, except it's freezing outside. So, just terrible weather, and a tanker ship had split in half. And there was a bar that he had to come over. And when the problem was that when the waves were crazy, they didn't know where the, the bar was because the, the wind and the waves were m moving the rock underneath so bad that you didn't know. And you had to go up and, and try to make it over the waves. But the problem was these boats, that the search and rescue ships, were tiny. This, the one that he used could only hold 12 people, technically. And so sometimes when they would go up, if they didn't make it over the crest of the wave, 
the, the boat could flip and just keep flipping end on end if they didn't make it over. So they finally make it out. They make it past the bar, something that no one thought was possible. But when he gets on the other side of the bar, he loses his compass, got washed off the boat. It's not like an enclosed boat. So he's like, okay, so we came out here to rescue these people. We have no idea where we are. So they just kept looking. And in a moment they look and there's this huge, the one half of the boat is, has been run ashore, run into a, a, some shoal. And there were 32 souls on board. And they all made it off in this 12-man boat. <laughs> and I just thought about, can you imagine the feeling of those on shore when they saw? Because the Coast Guard na- station, they knew he had no compass. They didn't know how. He just said, okay, I remember the wind was coming from this side when I came out, so it needs to be on the other side if I'm going back in. That's all he had going. And he said, we'll look for lights on shore. That's all we... The problem was all the lights in the town were out because of the storm. In the movie, they actually have all these people on shore turning on their car lights. I don't know if that's true to the actual story because I I couldn't find the actual account. But I was thinking about that that picture of search and rescue. As, As Christians, we're called out in the worst situations. We don't realize that we're actually on a search and rescue mission. The the trials and the, the temptations and, and the struggles we're facing today are a path that God is leading us on so that we will find lost souls. It seems like our life is going through and going to end. Like, there's no way, God, I'm going to make it over that wave. It's too big. God's saying, keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. Because on the other side... We'll see the purposes of God and we'll be able to, by His grace, be there when people need to hear the gospel. But we can't give up. We need to be single-heartedly devoted to Christ. Just like He was on the cross, He had a single-hearted devotion and that's what sent Him to the cross. That's why He died for us. Now it's our turn as believers in Christ, to suffer with Him, not for our salvation, not so that we can be saved, but because we have bound ourselves up in Him. We are chained to Him and we're saying, Lord, You are my Master. I will do whatever You say. It may cost me everything, but it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we as a church and as individuals and as families would be devoted single-heartedly to you. That our decisions day in and day out would be led by, is this what would please the Lord? Father, I pray that our mornings would be begin with 
Lord, I am your servant. Guide me, direct me, lead me. I will do all that you say. Father, I pray that you would give us courage and strength to stand against the tide that this world is bringing against us. It's enticing. It's, it even might bring pleasure at times, but Lord, I pray that we would not give in. You would encourage us to go the distance. Father, we need to be men and women of your word so that we can be a light in the midst of a turbulent and dark world. Cause us to shine your light out on the dark ocean so that others can see hope in Christ. Help us, Lord, to not forget that you have called us to be your slaves. You've called us to go out with your message and you've separated us from the world and to your will for our lives. Guide us, I pray, this week in Jesus' name. Amen.